So tonight I'm going to be continuing uh, the talk, the series of talks on the Four Noble Truths. So tonight, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, which is craving or desire, many words for that cause, and turned out to be somewhat appropriate that today we're focusing on desire because... It's Valentine's Day. I don't know if you were aware of that, whether there was anything that came into your realm of experience that told you it was that day. It certainly did in mine. Thank you, dear. Uh, oh, kind of. <laughs> Actually, he's... I won't go into it. <laughs> it was a gift. So Valentine's Day from St. Valentine, who was an early Christian saint, performed some miracle and was somehow the the patron saint of lovers, helped to to marry people and got kind of flourished in the Middle Ages when the romantic love really became available or uh, developed. Um, And now, of course, it's a huge commercial enterprise, right? That's mainly what Valentine's Day is, the buying and selling of cards and gifts and flowers and chocolate and going out for dinner. Um, and, you know, you know, even in this one day, how much suffering there is in the desire around Valentine's Day. How many people out there who want wanted to go out tonight and aunt or, you know, unrequited love. The image of love, of course, is Cupid with his arrow, you know, and that, just that sense of the, the vulnerability that happens every time we want, we desire, because so often we don't get what we want. So what I wish for you is that you be your own Valentine, and that that is probably the most helpful, powerful relationship you can have is self-love. And not in a narcissistic way, but actually that profound and deep meta-love that we're cultivating every day in our practice here, that is uh, full of acceptance. So instead of receiving cards or sending cards, write yourself a metta card that says, may I love and accept myself just as I am. And believe me, you'll be happier than most of the people out there celebrating Valentine's Day in the way they're doing. So So talking about the Four Noble Truths, do you know the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, being craving, the truth of the end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. There's a beautiful reframing of that teaching, that that series of practices, though. As I said, even though it's a lot about suffering, inherent in it is that it's about the end of suffering, which is basically happiness. But we can frame the Four Noble Truths as being about happiness. There is happiness. There's a cause of happiness, which is letting go, non-greed. It's possible to abide in happiness by ending greed or craving. And there's a path that leads to happiness, the the Eightfold Path. Just as true as the other framing is to frame it as a journey towards exploring, understanding, and deepening in happiness. But to do that, we have to look at what the obstacles 
to happiness are. And what the Buddha said is the main obstacle to happiness is tanha, Pali word tanha, which is usually translated as craving. So this is uh, the definition from the text from the Buddha about tanha. Now this bhikkhus, and bhikkhu is a word that means a serious practitioner, so in this context we're all bhikkhus. This bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. This is the classic definition of craving. This word tanha literally means thirst. John Peacock, who's a a, a respected Buddhist scholar, said, craving doesn't convey the pathos of the Pali word tanha, which actually means unquenchable thirst. So that's what it's really implying. It's this this addictive nature, this this insatiable kind of wanting. This is what is being conveyed with this word tanha. So we usually translate it as craving or greed or desire or attachment. And in it is also the force of not wanting. Because not wanting is just exactly that, not wanting something to happen. It's just craving turned around. So two sides of the same coin. And I always find it interesting that the Buddha chose craving as the source of suffering, not aversion, not delusion in this formulation. In other places, he he said the source of suffering are the three um, defilements or torments of mind, greed, aversion, and delusion. Sometimes he points to ignorance as being fundamental. But in many lists, it's craving. And I think part of his wisdom is the craving is harder to see as suffering. Aversion, we can really feel the impact, but to see the deep-rooted nature of this wanting mind and how, as I said, it includes the aversion and inherent in that is also the delusion that believes there's something um, that we can get that will make us happy in some ultimate way. So all of that is included when we talk about tanha, craving. Ajahn Suchito, a very wise English monk, says that tanha, meaning thirst, is not a chosen kind of desire. It's It's a reflex. It's the desire to pull something in and feed on it, the desire that's never satisfied because it just shifts from one sense base to another, from one emotional need to the next, from one sense of achievement to another goal. It's the desire that comes from the black hole of need, however small and manageable that need is. So that sense of a black hole, of this insatiable depth of the wanting that we can experience. Again, as in the First Noble Truth, there are three practices around the wanting, the greed, One is just the recognition, the origin of suffering is craving. The the second noble truth is the origin of suffering, the cause of suffering. The practice with it is the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. This is what the Buddha is asking us to do. If we want to truly know freedom, we abandon it. That's full awakening, this ultimate abandoning. But 
as we progress or, you know, work in this area, it's understanding it and letting go again and again and again. And then the fruit of that practice is craving has been abandoned. In a moment we can see the letting go that happens and really have that sense of a desire coming to an end by paying attention to it. I'll be talking more about that, but mainly to emphasize, again, this is something we can practice with. It's not something to take up as a belief system. Ajahn Sumedho, another wise uh, monk, says that the second noble truth encourages us not to focus on our ideas about things, but rather to notice their beginnings. This is a really helpful practice. We don't generally look at the beginnings of things. We look at something and we either like it and follow it or dislike it and reject it. But to experience a beginning as something observable, one has to be awake and mindful. We look at suffering as something that has a beginning then we begin to look at it in a different way. So to see the arising of the wanting, the arising of the suffering, not as always there, but actually something that arises due to certain conditions. Sayada Uta Tejaniya, one of my teachers, very uh, strong emphasis on noticing this force of wanting in the mind. He says, do not be led by greed, Take time to learn a little about greed. Pay attention to its characteristics. If you keep falling for greed, that is believing, getting sucked in by it, you will never understand its nature. So we can take this up as a practice. What is this force in the mind, in the heart, that leads us to want, to lean forward, to grasp, to hold on, to cling and to crave, to begin to explore it? Knowing I was going to be doing this series of talks, so a whole talk on desire, I, I, I just re- finished reading this book called Hooked. Hooked. Uh, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume. So it's a collection of uh, a wide array of Buddhist writers, some very scholarly, um, academic, some practitioners in all the different traditions, talking about this force and how it shapes our world and the world. So in the very um, direct ways of our inner experience and the ways these forces of greed and desire have created this consumer culture and a whole uh, movement of capitalism. So it's got a lot of interesting material, so I'll quote from it a number of times. It was edited by Stephanie Kaza. And she says, the human drive to want more and more things comes from a deeply felt sense of lack. Again, that sort of sense of the whole. Buddhist philosopher David Loy has called this lack a basic character of our human existence in this phenomenal world. Our activities in this world are motivated largely by the need to fill in this inherent lack we feel at the heart of our being. And many of us come to practice because we feel that sense of dissatisfaction or emptiness in a in a negative way, not complete, not whole. And so we're looking to fill it. It brings us to practice. Um, So it can have a positive effect if we notice that, but many people are just looking to stuff more things in to fill that hole. And I'm reminded of uh, the Buddhist realm of 
the hungry ghosts. In Buddhist cosmology, there are many realms, six main realms, the human realm, the animal realm, heavenly realm. There are hell realms that are very similar to the Christian idea of a hell realm, a lot of suffering, a lot of torment. But there's an interesting realm called the hungry ghosts, the pretas. And in this realm, the beings have very large stomachs, very thin necks, and little pinhole mouths. And they can never stuff enough in to fill these big bellies. So the image of them are, is, you know, wandering around looking, always trying to stuff, stuff, stuff things in and never being satiated, never being fulfilled. And as I was thinking about that, you know, it, we can all relate right now. I was just thinking shopping malls. You, you know, people in there with their bags on their arms, but they're going from shop to shop. What can I get? What do I need? Looking to, full, looking to be fulfilled by acquisition. So we've really created a whole generation of hungry ghosts that are always looking for that next hit to be filled. We actually live in a greed culture. We're surrounded by messages of acquisition, of, of, of getting. You know, there's that famous line in the movie, Wall Street, greed is good. Greed is the driving force, and it's okay. You know, that's what keeps the wheels going around. And so all of the ads that we see endlessly give us that message. A while ago, I saw this ad. It was for like a sporty SUV, and uh, there was a couple standing outside it, you know, very kind of self-possessed, and they were just surrounded. The car had its all its doors and tailgates open. It was filled with stuff, and the stuff was outside it. So all of this outdoor stuff, kayaks and bikes and boats and tents and balls and, you know, climbing gear and everything, you know, it's just all this stuff. And the caption was, to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. <laughs> and so it's even co-opting, you know, the messages of, of Buddhism in this capitalist culture. And James pointed out this ad we saw the other day, watching the Super Bowl, which we did a little bit, um, an AT&T ad where they have the, I, I didn't see a lot, but he told me about it, these young kids and the, 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 someone's asking these young kids, which is better to do one thing or two things at once? And the kids go, oh, two things, two things is better. Which is better, less or more? More is better, more is better. Which is better, fast or slow? Fast is better, fast is better. So, you know, these young kids are being indoctrinated. Fast is better, more is better, two is better than one. Multitasking, get it done, acquire it, more, more, more. So this is the message that we're getting again and again and again. Again from this book, Hooked. Author Bill McKibben once did the experiment of watching every minute of television that was aired on a single day by the largest cable system at the time. That's a definition of dukkha, right? Uh, but he said, he concluded that the central theme repeated in ad after ad was this, you are the most important thing on earth. This was the message. Can this really be the primary orientation of our times in place of caring for others, Looking out, look out for yourself instead of communing with God or nature, surf the shop, shopping channel. McKibben calls this idolatry. Instead of idolatry, you know, images, idols or whatever, idolatry, this worship of self and of what 
we feel we need. This extreme self-referencing fostered by the profiteers of consumerism. So it's understandable that we get hooked. We've been fed these messages day in and day out for so many years. All of them saying, consume, want more, get more, and then you'll be happy. These images of happiness supporting, you know, coming out of these messages. And so little telling us the opposite of the benefits of simplicity or renunciation. And so it can be hard to recognize this force of desire as a source of suffering because it seems like it's going to be the source of happiness. You know, if we get what we want, we'll be happy. So it's beguiling to us. We get, we get hooked. We, we believe the message. Sharon Salzberg tells the story of walking through a bazaar in Asia, probably in India, and you know, there are always crowded places and all this stuff hanging, you know, every square inch is filled with stuff and people are trying to get you to buy and hearing someone calling to her, trying to get her to come to their store. Wait, I have what you need. <laughs> and you hear that, you go, you do? You know, what's that? I have what you need. And, but all of these ads are saying that, aren't they, in one form or another. And so we think there's something out there that's going to satisfy. We'll stuff that one last thing in and somehow we'll feel full. We'll feel satiated. It will do us and we'll find that happiness that's been promised to us for so long. There'll be some stability some permanence of happiness because we've found that right thing. And so we get very object or experience oriented. Happiness is out there. And the fact that I'm not happy just means I haven't found it yet. The right thing, the right experience, the right relationship. And I can't be happy until I find that thing that's going to do it for me. And this can manifest in so many ways, from the subtlest sense of discontent and not quite rightness to the deepest yearnings that we can feel for, for um, a job or a relationship or even spiritual experiences can have that kind of dissatisfaction or yearning. When we start to actually look at this directly in our practice, in our experience, we get to be disillusioned, as in the sense, or disenchanted. I love that sense. Not caught in the spell of this, this magic spell that's been woven, that there is something out there that's going to do it for us. And we start to see that we are actually never fully satisfied by achieving what we think we want, getting what we think we want. Of course, there is temporary happiness and not to deny that, but you start to track this and you see it's temporary. It's conditioned. So many examples of that. A little while ago, I read this Kurt Vonnegut poem in The New Yorker, and it was titled, entitled Joe Heller, Joe, Joseph Heller, the famous author. So this is the poem. True story, word of honor. Joseph Heller, an important and funny writer, now dead, and I were at a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. I said, Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money 
than your novel, Catch-22, has earned in its entire history. And Joe said, I've got something he can never have. And I said, what on earth can that be, Joe? And Joe said, the knowledge that I have enough. Not bad, rest in peace, said Kurt Vonnegut. The knowledge that I have enough. And you see this again and again. Those that have so much always want more. It's just because they, they, have, they have all this stuff and they're not satisfied. And there's that story, I think it's Rockefeller, when he, you know, wealthiest man in the world at the time, and was asked, well, how much do you want or need? And he just, just a little bit more. Just, you know, not quite enough. This is the hungry ghost realm. And so there's always something out there, a new object or a new challenge that we feel if we conquer that, get that, acquire that, happiness will come. Again from Hooked, taking a panoramic view of human history and contemporary global culture, we can identify several areas wherein human beings have sought and continue to seek this elusive happiness. In short, human history has been propelled in great part by the pursuit of three basic desires, the desire to possess, the desire to know, and the desire for thrill and sustained pleasure. Driving so many of us, always seeking. And because we're beguiled by this possibility of these objects or experiences, we don't contemplate the inherent drawbacks of whatever it is. The Tibetans have this great saying, desire puts feathers on the object. And it means it kind of fancies it up, you know, it it makes it look good. Sparkles, it's like desire puts sparkles on things. And you see that again and again. I mean, just a few examples. The idea of travel, traveling. You know, everyone, everyone, a lot of people want to travel, right? So there's a whole travel industry. So what do they show? People enjoying delicious food, beautiful vistas, you know, exciting adventures, they don't, and, and you look at that and go, oh yes, Italy or Bhutan or safari in Africa or you know, Florida or whatever it might be. And you forget the irritability and getting cranky with your traveling partner and being lost and tired and hungry and you know, not knowing where you are and the bus not coming on time and not knowing how to find your way in the train station. But you think, oh, Italy, Italy will just be fun or whatever it is. And it's not, you know, <laughs> all the time, all the time. It, it, it's, this is the epitome of infomercials. I mean, I don't watch infomercials, but occasionally you see a glimpse and there's always the beginning where there's the person who's wearied or struggling or, you know, beset by these problems. And then again, the feathers on this object, whatever it is, that comes into their life and then they smile and they dance around and it's like, but wait, there's more. And there's always, but wait, you'll not get one of these, but two more is better. And life's problems will be solved if only you have the instomatic whatever it is, and we can get beguiled by that. I know I I can be beguiled by the idea that there's something that will help me do things better. I must admit of my desire failing. I love gadgets. I love technology. I love things that work and do things. I will attest to my love of gadgets. I'm pretty 
pretty good about not accumulating ones I don't need. But I, I remember, you know, looking, flipping through a Walgreens, you know, flyer, and my eye lighting on something because it was it looked like a gadget. It had a readout, you know, dials and buttons. It's like, oh, what's that? Do I need that? And I look closer, and it's like a thing to test your blood sugar. It's like, no, you don't need. But just the, it was a gadget, and it's like maybe that's a gadget I need. So I know I have a little issue in this area. So a small example about this is I actually needed to get a new computer. My computer was four or five years old. It was getting so full. It was constantly saying, you know, no room, having to slow down, close something. So have to get a new computer. Should be fun, right? You know, I love gadgets. I love computers. I love technology. But I have to make decisions. You know, how big or how small? Do I want really light or really sturdy? I3 or I5 or I7 processor. How big a hard? So it's like, I don't know. You know what's right? There's no right. There's this. So I go through all of this, this or that. And finally, I decide this is a computer I want. So I get online, tick, 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 not available. What do you mean not available? I call up and the guy says, oh, yeah, we have all that, but not a CD player. I said, Sony doesn't have CD players to put in this. I said, no, not available. Well, when will they be available? Don't know. Don't have any date. Okay, so Sony, one of the biggest computer manufacturers, doesn't have CD players and doesn't know when they'd be available. No, no. So, you know, all of that, write this computer and not happy. So desire causing suffering. So I let it go. Okay, the next day I idly just thought, I'll check again available. I called the same guy up and said, I noticed that today it's available. Yes. He goes, yeah, you're right. Today it's available. <laughs> it's just crazy. So order the computer. Great. Done. Two weeks to manufacture, two weeks to ship. It's like, you know, desire is always out there. It's never, never satisfied. So finally I get the email, your computer is shipped. When is it coming? Ten days. They said express shipping. What do you mean ten days? That's like, okay, ten days. And then the next day there's a knock on the door. There's my computer. It's like, wow, it's here. But you know what day that was? The day I did my talk last week. I had no time, so I have this brand new computer and it's still sitting on the dining room table and I haven't been able to set it up or play with it. And so this is just, again, a small example. We think this is going to be the thing that brings us, oh, a new computer, everything will go smoothly, faster, more convenient. And it's just, it's not just suffering, but there certainly was suffering in this desire. So, you know, we get beguiled by the possibility and we don't stay in touch with what the reality is but we get these messages again and again if we pay attention to what actually happens with this force of wanting. I also like animals. You may have noticed I like to tell animal stories and read books about animals. And one of the books I read recently that I found very insightful was by Temple Grandin. 
She's a high-functioning autistic woman who has become an animal behaviorist because she feels her mind works very similarly to what she intuits animals do. She thinks in pictures, and things can frighten her the way animals do, and she gets reassurance the way animals do. And, and one, it's, this book is called Animals in Translation, and even though it's about animals, there's a lot about the human mind because we are animals too. And she talks about this tendency of mind or this this um, activity of mind called curiosity, interest, anticipation as being a core emotion of us as animals, this seeking kind of, of uh, movement of mind. And this is a horrible experiment. I hate animal experiments, but it's interesting. I, you know, it's done, so I'll just tell you the results. It said that animals that can control having that part of their mind stimulated, that seeking part, will press that lever until they're exhausted. That seeking, it's not even about food. It's just that curiosity, that, that, that wanting. Um, will, will, they'll be driven until they're exhausted. Have you felt that in yourself? That wanting to know, to understand, to seek, to have, to get. And we can exhaust ourselves with that. And culture, as I said, media is doing that for us, always offering that tantalizing thing that's out there that's going to bring us happiness. You open any magazine, you turn on any media device, and there are these messages of this new thing that's going to bring us happiness, whether it's in fashion or music or cars or, you know, all of the stuff. I mean, is it the weight of the stuff in the world that's being created out of desire and trying to have people feel that desire and want that stuff to keep this engine, engine of, of consumerism going around. And so I don't want to say in this that it's, you know, that we shouldn't ever want or be curious or have that aliveness in us of, of exploration of the world. No, you know, this is the, the, we wouldn't be here unless we had some form of desire or curiosity about the Dharma, about what a month or two month retreat might be like. But it's really to develop skills in this area, to start to look at this force and start to bring discriminating wisdom to it to distinguish between wants and needs, to, to what we need to be healthy and whole and supported and sustained, and what's extra. This is where we can bring the practice in of what's beneficial for us, what actually supports true happiness. And so we start to get curious about the nature of desire itself, not so much the object. For most of us in the past or without wisdom, it's the object that's the area of fascination. You know, what is it? What do we want? Like me and the computer, what do I want? What about this and that? And it was all about the object, not about the impact it was having on me and my mind. This is a radical shift. The Buddha said, chasing after desires is like drinking salt water. Salt water can never satisfy your thirst, but only increase it. So we start to look at the nature or the type or the quality of desire itself 
as a felt experience, as something we can actually know and explore. So we're not so lost in it. The Buddha actually talked about three different types of desire or tanha or craving. There's the desire for sensual pleasures. And we all know that. Temple talked the other night about his family as a typical middle-class family and basing their choices and their lifestyle upon having pleasant experiences. And the trap of that, of course, is what was pleasant or satisfying one day is mundane the next, so we have to have a better pleasant experience or a better meal or, you know, more refined clothing or a better cut. It's that kind of desire, again, is never satisfied. But we can track this even, you know, in our moment-to-moment experience, looking for this pleasant Vedana and being driven by that at the six sense doors. This is a big part of what we can do here in retreat. But it gets more interesting when the Buddha talks about desire. He said the second kind of desire is bhavatanha, craving for existence or becoming. And this is the whole realm of wanting to be, create identity, create solidity in our relationship to ourselves. So all of the identities we can take up in a day. Some, and so often they're ones we want, they're pleasant, the good meditator. So you can might notice in the morning you're peaceful or calm or energetic, good meditator. Afternoon hindrances, restlessness, sleepiness, bad meditator. This is bhavatanha. Even the negative ones are still taking up this holding on to creating bhavatanha's identification. All of the roles we take up, mother, father, daughter, sister, brother, lover, um, engineer, artist, you know, they're all bhavatanha. When we take them up and hold on to them, cling to them, look to them as a source for our happiness, as a source of happiness. Even the thoughts about ourselves, or we're a kind person, or a happy person, or a judgmental person, all in this realm of bhavatanha, a kind of craving for existence. And it's interesting, as I said, even the negative ones, when we look at why do we want to do that, beat ourselves up as a bad, being a bad person, there's still some satisfaction in that, some kind of knowing, oh, this is the truth of things, or this is who I am. The whole talk we could give about that kind of judgment of ourselves. And it, that can lead into the next, the third kind of craving, vibhava tanha, vibhava, not becoming craving. So traditionally, or in, in its extreme co- form, this is not wanting to exist. You know, virtu- uh, you know, literally nihilism, wanting things to end, not wanting to be here. But it can be all of the forms that our not liking can take. Not liking of ourselves, I don't like my anger or my fear, or I don't like my body or my, my judging mind. This is vibhava tanha. Again, as I said, the way the craving includes the opposite, not wanting this, not 
not, I, not liking this aspect of experience. It's another form of craving that we can get caught in. So we need to track and be aware of all of these forms because all of them lead to suffering. Even the sense pleasures, if we do it without mindfulness, if we get attached to them, dependent on them for our happiness because they're conditioned and temporary, when they end, as they will, that'll cause suffering. So this isn't to deny the beauty and the joy and the pleasure we can experience in life. This is important. We've talked a lot about wholesome states of mind and cultivating them. But really recognizing when we attach to them with craving, when we depend on them being a certain way for us to be happy, we will suffer because they're impermanent, they're a condition, they're not going to last, they're not going to give us that form of suffering, uh, happiness that we're looking for. So here on retreat, this is a great realm to explore. We're secluded from those incessant messages of the media about how we should look or act or dress or what we should have, or, you know, the latest phone we might be able to talk, have our inane conversations on or, you know, text message on or whatever, secluded from that. But how many things have you found here to desire? There's still quite a lot, right? You know, of even the time of day to take your shower or how you want your yogi job to unfold. I was once talking to a monastic where I said, oh, it must be so much easier for you as a monastic with all of these rules of simplicity and renunciation, you know, they can't choose what food to eat. I mean, we have a limited menu, but still you serve yourself and you can choose what you take. And many monks just live by only eating what's put into their bowl. So I say, it must be so much easier for you. And he just shook his head and said, no, it's not. The same force of desire just narrows to fewer objects. You know, how fine your robes are, how big your bowl is, you know, how many followers you have. So that force of desire is still there. You know, we can give up all of the outer trappings and still it's there to work with. So it doesn't disappear just by coming here to Spirit Rock. We still have to practice with it. And it is a practice. We can practice with it. As I said, the three aspects that the Buddha um, told us to do, that, that the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. And this is not an abandoning out of aversion. Oh, I shouldn't want that. I shouldn't, you know, have that experience. That's more vibhava tanha. That's aversion. But actually seeing how attachment to objects and to experience, dependence on experience, this insatiable thirst, does cause us suffering here and now in our immediate experience. And when we see that, just as I said last time about suffering, there's a natural letting go that happens. We don't have to tell ourselves to let go. We see for ourselves that we are not going to find that happiness that we so long for by holding on, by manipulating experience to try to get more pleasant experiences and having that be kind of the ruling factor in our lives. 
And so we start to bring act just mindfulness to this experience. What does desire feel like in the body? To feel that leaning forward. You know, you can feel it. The fantasies are coming and there's, I know, you know, this kind of up and out, up and out, just a little bit. It's kind of like, you know, they talk about being pulled by our nose. You can feel that, right? Oh, and then you realize what's happening and you feel a down and back. Ha, huh. notice that little bit of peace in the letting go. What are the thoughts in the mind that are telling you you need this or you have to get rid of this? Recognize that. What's the story it's telling you? What story are you believing in that you have to have this to be happy? Or you can't find peace unless you get rid of this knee pain. Notice those stories. And feel the suffering in the desire itself. As again, again, we often don't do this. It's like, oh, the object is so beguiling. But we don't notice as I, you know, and I really tracked this, actually. I joked about you know, being kind of mindless about the computer, but I was actually tracking how it was suffering. It was meant to be you know, happiness, getting what I wanted. But I saw all the different ways it was actually suffering. It was frustrating or confusing, or I didn't have it, and that was suffering. So actually to feel in the the wanting of it, the not having on it, that sense of lack, the strategizing that we do to get, the planning and the obsessing. We can feel that directly and know it. And in talking again about desire, there are unwholesome desires, unskillful desires that lead us into suffering, but there are also wholesome desires We would not be here if we didn't have desire. Desire to know, to be more loving or kind or to wake up. This is totally necessary for us on our path. There's another word for desire that's really important to know about, and that's chanda. This word, Pali word chanda, is usually translated as desire, but it's kind of a neutral kind of desire that gets its valence by what it's associated with. So kama chanda, kama is K-A-M-A, is sense desire, um, the senses. So kama chanda is just the garden variety desire for the senses, and that can often be unskillful or unwholesome. We're just grasping after sense pleasures. Dhamma chanda is love of the Dhamma. And we all have this or we wouldn't be here. And we all need this or we won't have that passion, that that fire that it takes to do this work, to keep going on the path, to keep going through the difficulties. So we need to distinguish between unwholesome or unskillful desire, craving, wanting, and wholesome desire that's actually necessary for us on the path. Tanasaru Bhikkhu, another very uh, wise Buddhist scholar, teacher, practitioner, says this about discerning between wholesome and unwholesome desire. He said, if desire doesn't really produce happiness, and he means deep happiness, it contradicts its reason for being. And he says, all phenomena, the Buddha once said, are rooted in desire. Everything we think, say, or do, every experience 
comes from desire. Even we come from desire. We were reborn into this life because of our desire to be bhavatanha. Consciously or not, our desires keep redefining our sense of who we are. Desire is how we take our place in the causal matter of space and time. The only thing not rooted in desire is nibbana, its ultimate freedom, for it's at the end of all phenomena and lies even beyond the Buddha's use of the word all. But the path that takes you to nibbana is rooted in desire. The path that takes you to nibbana is rooted in desire, in skillful desire, dhamma chanda. The path to liberation pushes the limits of skillful desires to see how far they can go. So we need to navigate this terrain. It's not, we need to understand what true happiness is, what true freedom is, and recognize it's not about getting rid of desire or desire is bad. It's not saying that. The Buddha said, is it better to live in a palace and be free of desire than to be in a cave consumed by the wanting mind? So it's not to, you know, we have to, give away everything, not have beautiful things around us, but to know this force of the mind for ourselves and in ourselves. And that the dependence on sense pleasures, the dependence on getting and having is not going to bring us happiness. Joseph Goldstein once said something that I found so helpful. Restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. So we reach out, we want, and yet there can be that wisdom of, you know, maybe I don't need. And so it can be helpful. You know, your desire for a second cookie that you didn't act out of, where is that now? Is there any lack in this moment by the cookie you didn't have last week? Or, you know, whatever it was that you were obsessed with six months ago, that you had to have, you know, a book or seeing the latest movie. This always drives me crazy. Going to see the movie the first night it opens and lines and everything, it's going to be the same the second night or the third, you know, but there's this desire to have. Where is that desire of something you really wanted six months ago? Restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. Again, Joseph has a piece in this book, Hooked, where he says, Renunciation is not a particularly appreciated cultural value, and even if we are somewhat aware of its value, it may not be all that inspiring. In St. Augustine's famous prayer, he says, Dear Lord, make me chase, but not yet. And we can have that, you know, I know renunciation would be good for me, but not quite ready for it yet. But another way of talking about renunciation is through understanding it as non-addiction, non-craving. Whereas renunciation feels like a burden or a sense of deprivation, non-addiction implies freedom, which is something all of us want. So sometimes we just need to reframe what's happening. It's not giving up sackcloth and ashes, but actually seeing that non-addiction, non-dependence is freedom, is happiness. Saida Utejaniya, who we've spoken of a couple of times, um, 
has a, I think we've even talked about this practice, but it's so helpful when we're looking at the mind. And meditation is the work of the mind. As much as we use the body to help us stay in the present and help us to track experience, it's the mind that we're training. So he says to ask these three questions. Am I aware? And the good thing about asking this question is if you have the wherewithal to ask it, generally you'll be able to say yes. So there's this little hit of, oh yes, I am aware. Good, so good. Am I aware? Yes. What am I aware of? And I think I mentioned this this morning. So it's this orienting. What am I paying attention to? But the third one is the most important. How am I relating to that? What is my relationship to that? Am I wanting something to happen? Am I wanting something to stop happening? Do I know what's happening? And this is all looking at unhooking this tendency of mind to be in contention with experience, to be trying to hold on to something, trying to push something away, or not aware of what's actually happening. So this is how we can practice in any moment with noticing this force of wanting, not wanting in the mind. Just very simply, am I aware what is happening? And so this leads us to the abandoning of craving, non-clinging, as defined by the Buddha, is the heart of what he teaches. Again, Joseph said that he read this text. He'd read it many, many times, but one day, the, you know, this is called an insight. Oh, it's not, again, just a, a philosophical statement, but a practice. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has, had, has heard all of the teachings. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all of the teachings. Whoever has realized this truth has realized all of the teachings. So Joseph said that his practice was then and probably still essentially is noticing clinging and letting go. Residing in peace as much as is accessible and noticing the arising of clinging And in the noticing, the letting go happening. Simple as that. Noticing clinging. And in clinging is all of identification, bhava tanha, bhuvava tanha. So, you know, it's not just simple, but noticing clinging and letting go. This is the path that leads to the end of suffering. It's as simple as that, and it's as profound as that. Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, that famous Thai forest meditation master, has this wonderful little pamphlet called Temporary Nibbana, where he says, any defilements which have arisen cease when their causes and conditions are finished. Although it may be a temporary quenching, merely a temporary coolness, it still means Nibbana, freedom, even if it is only temporarily. Thus, there's a temporary nibbana for those who still have some defilements they can't avoid. This, indeed, is the temporary nibbana that sustains the lives of beings who are still caught in defilement. Anyone can see that if the defilements existed night and day without any pause or rest, 
no life can endure it. If it didn't die, it would go crazy and then die in the end. So we look at our mind and we see craving isn't there all the time. Aversion isn't there all the time. There's this temporary moments of coolness, of letting go of freedom. And we can know that. And it may be momentary, but the more we track it, because Buddha Dasa goes on to say, whenever finding coolness in your experience, mark that coolness firmly in your heart. Breathe in and out. Breathing in is cool. Breathing out is cool. In cool, out cool. Do that for a little while. This is an excellent lesson which will, which will help you to become a Nibbana Kamo, a Nibbana Kamo, a lover of Nibbana, more quickly, help you become that more quickly. The instincts will develop in an enlightened way more than if you don't practice in like this. Natural Nibbana, the unconscious quenching of defilement, will occur more often and easily. This is the best way for the mind to help nature do this, wisdom to arise. Nibbana Kamo, a lover of Nibbana, a lover of peace and ease and letting go. And so we see again and again these choice points, choosing, wanting, contraction, objecting, organizing experience and the possibility of letting go. And in this practice again and again, we just choose letting go to know that's actually the way to happiness. So let's just sit quietly and let the words settle. So thank you for your attention. Time for walking and then we'll come back for the last sit 
and chant together that be- the beautiful chant of the highest blessings that talks about the happiness of letting go and simplicity. So if you've had a habit of just checking out at this time of night, perhaps check in. You know, as we settle into the retreat, we do pick up more energy. And so maybe it's a refreshing walk, some cool night air, a cup of tea, and maybe you can join us for the last sit and chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.